I, I mean, I would love it if there was like a coherent, cohesive, let's say Mitt Romney led uh, faction of the Republican Party that was like a, a counterweight to Trumpism. But I feel like their hopes have been dropping every month since 2016. Right. But I think the point is that's because they don't have power. Right. Again, they, these people were used to the idea that they were the natural people to run the Republican Party. And they got pushed out by this new Trump side. So they weren't used to the idea that they had to organize themselves in order to protect their own interests. And again, that's where that's what they needed to be doing the day after Trump was elected. Just being against Trump is not enough. Right. That's what voter and just saying we want to go back to the way things are is not enough because voters don't want to go back to the thing the way things were. They don't want a restoration of the ancien regime. Right. And that's where, again, I think there's been a failure of ideas on that side. This week on Forward, we welcome political science professor at Johns Hopkins, senior fellow at the Niskanen Center, uh, author of several fascinating books, including Never Trump, Revolt of the Conservative Elites. Stephen Tellis joins us. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you for having me, Andrew. It's great to have you. And uh, I am a fan of your work. I feel like the Niskanen Center might be the most relevant think tank uh, to what I've been working on for quite some time. I cite your research all the time, maybe not yours individually, since there are a bunch of people there. <laughs> yeah. How would you, how, like people have heard of Johns Hopkins, so they're like, okay, political science professor at Johns Hopkins, I get. How would you describe the Niskanen Center? So the Niskanen Center is a somewhat complicated operation to explain. Uh, I often explain it as, as um, synthesizing things people think are contradictions, right? So a lot of the people who uh, founded the Niskanen Center uh, had been libertarians, had been at the Cato Institute, had been at the Mercatus Center, and uh, for various reasons uh, decided that um, that sort of libertarian brand was inconsistent with their own evolution, in part on things like climate change, but also on the importance of social insurance and redistribution um, that they decided that uh, sort of pure form libertarianism uh, didn't work. And so I think what the Niskanen Center is really trying to do is to synthesize a belief in the importance of markets and of creative destruction, but also with the, uh, the necessity both to stabilize capitalism of having redistribution and uh, to have a proper sort of regulatory or tax system to deal with exactly the externalities, things that like um, like environmental damage. So that's really the balance that we're trying to maintain at the Niskanen Center. Wow. Is there a catchy name for this new balanced uh, vision of libertarianism? Because I have to say, I probably subscribe to it. <laughs> yeah. So, we, so, so Brent Lindsay and I, for a long time, ran a dinner series in D.C., called the Libertarian uh, Roundtable. Um, and so libertarian, which is a term that Brink came up with, sort of synthesizes that idea of modern liberalism and libertarianism. Now, the problem is libertarianism doesn't exactly, uh, you know, roll off the right tongue. Off the, no. 
tongue. Um, I, I describe myself as a liberal, but in the sense of being in the tradition of John Locke and John Stuart Mill and uh, John Maynard Keynes, right? That's a kind of tradition that's bigger than our current left-right divisions. And so liberals fine with me so long as people understand that there's a difference between that and whatever the Democratic Party happens to be doing. So are you describing that as classic liberal? Because I hear that a lot about, like, for example, Justin Amash. Yeah, I mean, well, now Justin Amash, I mean, he, I mean, he he's just a straight up libertarian. Libertarian, yeah, I know. Um, I mean, I think the closest thing people might be familiar with is just The Economist magazine. If you look at the, um, you know, that, that sort of spirit of liberalism, of believing in markets, believing in free speech uh, and the importance of knowledge and the development of knowledge, um, but then also being concerned about the ways that that kind of liberal commitments can be inconsistent or can be sort of self-liquidating in practice. Um, in particular, because markets create, you know, so much disruption that if you don't find a way to uh, to stabilize them, then politically they'll be unsustainable. I think that's a classic kind of liberal problem, a problem that goes all the way back again to John Stuart Mill. And you see that in um, uh, in places like The Economist. So that's probably the one that um, that most sort of uh, will have a resonance for your listeners. If you read The Economist, then you are... Uh, Niskanen Center, left libertarian, libertarian, whatever it is that uh, we're, we're going to call this. Though I, I will say I'm going to do some more work on trying to find a catchy name because I think this is a very important synthesis. If you reflect on it for a moment, uh, climate change is going to need the government to help. I think most people recognize that. And then if you even believe in the power of markets, you would still need the government to put in like a carbon credit system or whatever it was that would allow the markets to address negative externalities. And in that case, it's a negative externality that could get the best of all of us. I have the sense that climate change was one of the major forces that drove this, uh, the founding of the Niskanen Center, because you were looking at it being like, okay, the government needs to do something on this. Well, I think, I mean, I would say a couple of things. Um, one, I would say both the climate change thing and this point about the importance of social insurance, which obviously, you know, I believe someone told me once that you have a big program for redistribution. I yeah, did, yeah, I mean, right. I the, the, the universal based income. I mean, I that's, we, we cited in this Canon Center research because you were one of the only places that produced robust studies on what yeah. like a basic income would do. Right. So, so I would say, you know, the guy who runs our social welfare uh, program, Sam Hammond, who you probably know of, wrote a great paper called The Free Market Welfare State. And he said, look, in practice, if you look at the societies that have the freest, um, most deregulated markets, um, they don't accidentally also have the largest welfare states. Those things in practice go together, right? You might be able to write something theoretically in which you could simultaneously have a small welfare state and a, um, and a vibrant market society, but those things don't seem in practice to go together. And I think those two insights are really the thing that creates the Niskanen synthesis. Now, the other thing I would say that I think that we have in common with you, and we have different than people who call themselves centrists, is that people who call themselves centrists often have these little tiny, tweaky, nudgy sorts of reforms that they're in favor of. And I think what both the Niskanen Center and you have in common is the sense that we need 
really big, large-scale changes, not just tweaks at the margin. Um, famously, in Lampedusa's book, The Leopard, he says, for everything to stay the same, everything has to change. And I think that's sort of our insight that we have in common is that we need really big changes, not just another tiny tax credit um, that's going to, you know, that's going to be able to do the work that we need to make this system stable and just. Sign me up, really. I, I You know, I, I do think that we need huge changes. And it's something I struggle with about what you'd consider generally moderate or centrist, because that does sound like, oh, I just want to tweak things a little bit. It's like, no, I actually think we're, we, we're kind of doomed unless we do some big things. Uh, though what, what's interesting, and we can discuss this, is that um, I've concluded that the only way to do big things is to unite uh, people uh, who right now are considered moderate, I suppose, in, in many milieus, uh, to try and reform the system so that we can actually uh, get anything meaningful done, much less big things done. You co-wrote a book that was uh, very well regarded. I was going to say it, uh, you know, massively influential. There is a, now an ongoing effort around it called the captured economy, which I think is a fantastic metaphor. I mean, it's not even a metaphor. It's pretty much literally <laughs> true <laughs> at, at, at this point. Can, can you describe uh, for listeners what you meant by the captured economy? Yeah. So the basic insight of the captured economy is that we have two big general problems, right? One is we've had a slowing down of economic growth and all kinds of things that we care about are connected to economic growth, right? The, the availability of good, well-paying jobs, the availability of technologies that can make people's lives better. Um, and at the same time as we've had that slowing down of economic growth, we've also had an explosion of economic inequality. And if you look at the sort of classic texts that people wrote decades ago, these two things should not go together. Right. Usually people think if you go all the way back to, um, you know, the famous book, uh, Equality and Efficiency by um, by Arthur Oaken, he said that there was a trade off. There was what he called the big trade off between equality and efficiency. Uh, but somehow that trade off seems no longer to hold. Right. We've got we've got both. We've got slowing down of growth and we have an explosion of inequality. And so the question is, how could we have both of those things at the same time? And so the captured economy, either metaphor or description or whatever we're calling it, is our effort to make sense of that. And essentially what we say is we've had an explosion of what economists called rents, um, uh, various different kinds of uh, barriers to entry and other kind of regulatory constraints, but that all seem to have the effect of pulling income upward, right? And in the book we use, we take we take a bunch of examples, but they're by no means exhaustive. In finance, we've had an explosion of various different kinds of rents that have in fact led to a kind of financialization of the economy. We've had an explosion of intellectual property, um, which again also has the effect of slowing down growth because it makes it harder for people to sort of share technologies to, uh, to use things that other people have invented, put it into new kinds of products. Instead, we've got all these transaction costs. Anytime anyone wants to do something, they have to go and go through this incredible IP maze. We have had an enormous explosion in occupational licensing at the same time as we've had a decline in unionization over the last 40 years. And that's made it harder to come up with new kinds of business models and healthcare and, and other things. 
while also pushing up the wages of doctors in particular. And finally, and again, if, I, you know, if you're in New York, but lots of your, read, your listeners are in San Francisco and other places, we've had this complete breakdown of the system of building new housing, especially in places that are of the, where there's the most economic growth and opportunity. And what that's meant is one, that we can't actually move people where the opportunity is. And that has all kind of economic growth uh, effects. But also what it means is the people who are already the insiders in the housing system systematically get their housing wealth pushed up. And so in all those dimensions, we have this enormous regulatory mechanism for upward redistribution that also reduces economic dynamism. I, I agree with uh, all of the issues that you just cited. Um, I, I suggested at different times, hey, we should lighten up on some of these license share requirements, um, particularly around healthcare, which you cite. Um, and one of my jokes was, do we really think human anatomy changes between Vermont and Massachusetts? <laughs> like, like, what's that about? <laughs> well, well, the other thing about this one, so the example I often use is dentistry, um, because, you know, we all have something against dentists. Um, but if you look at the regulation of dentistry, one of the big areas in that is what are called scope of practice regulations, which is who can do what procedure, right? And so again, you know, a lot of you have had the experience of going into the dentist office and the first person you meet is the dental hygienist and she goes and cleans your teeth and looks at things and does the x-rays and does everything else. And at some point, the dentist kind of comes in and sort of waves his hand over something, stays there for two minutes and then leaves, right? Um, but that dental hygienist in almost every state has to practice in a dentist's office, right? They're required by law, right? Now you could imagine amazing new business models where the de where the dental hygienists basically say, no, we want to go and practice on our own. We're going to go and clean people's teeth. We could do it way cheaper than if you had to have this dentist involved, right? And we wouldn't have to kick up all of our profits up to the dentist. So you can see that mechanism there of upward redistribution, in this case, redistribution from the, from the, the patient to the dental hygienist to the dentist, right? And you get that reduction in economic uh, growth because you don't have the opportunities for all kinds of new ways to, um, to provide um, uh, models for how you could practice. And you see that all over healthcare, where you have all these regulations of who can do what. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record, your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button 
and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. So let's say I agree with you. I think people listening uh, agree that there must be at least some regulations that uh, are counterproductive. So you write this book a number of years ago, and then there's an ongoing um, effort, I believe, called the Captured Economy that grew out of the, the book. Has there been any progress? Have there been any victories in terms of uh, trying to untie some of these red tape regs? And who... Uh, who backs those kinds of things? Because you can see clearly um, that there's going to be a powerful lobby in a lot of these um, instances where like the dentists in this case or the healthcare uh, practitioners say like, oh no, like we, we need to, to make it so that you need certain environments, certain licenses. And on, on one level, you're like, sure. But on the flip side, and I, I will say this is actually something I'm very passionate about. There's a massive freaking doctor shortage in this country. Uh, and you look at it and you're like, wait a minute, is there a shortage of human beings that want to be doctors? Definitely not. Uh, so what is the holdup? And the holdup is that there is an artificial cap on supply uh, from the, uh, the physician lobby. Um, and if you wanted to open a new med school, it's like impossible to do so right now. Uh, you know, if you wanted to train more doctors, you couldn't. And so by the way, our population continues to grow. And so you have a country that has massive primary care deserts. Uh, you know, there, there are some environments you have to drive like two or three hours just to see a physician. Um, and so at that point, the logical thing to do would be like, hey, maybe we should have like physician's assistants or nurse practitioners able to see people and do a bunch of things in these areas. And the physician's lobby still fights that. So you, you have um, these powerful lobbies on one side. Who's on the other side? So, okay, so there was a million things all in that, uh, and let me unpack them. Right? One thing to say is if you look, just sort of scanning even further back, if you look at the changes over the last 40 years in the economy, and I think some of this does explain the sort of Trumpist populist kind of stuff, right, which is um, people who have ordinary jobs have been uh, subject, and I, I'm, I'm basically a free trader, but they've been subject to enormous international trade, right? So um, they're both both through immigration and through products, right? So those people say, oh, you know, look, I, I'm in the I'm in the global economy, right? My salary is determined in some significant way by flows of people and goods internationally. But almost all these areas that you were talking about are not, right? Doctors are not subject to international trade. They're not subject to, right? We have all these barriers to um, doctors who are trained in other places, practicing in the United States. Doctors can also determine their own domestic competition for the reasons you talked about by limits on, um, on the training of new doctors. And so there, I think part of what, we get, what produces populism is the sense that the people on the top are manipulating the rules to protect themselves while everybody else is subject to a different set of rules. And so that's one of the big pieces um, here. And again, I think you're right on the politics 
The politics of almost all these sectors is that there's a classic concentrated interest around the regulatory regime. And just going back to dentists, because I'm obsessed with dentists, um, the, uh, in all these cases, you have a state dental board, right? Uh, and they're the ones who set up the regulations. They determine whether or not you can do teeth whitening in the mall or whether you do it, have to do it in a dentist's office. Now, who do you imagine shows up for dental board meetings, right? Do you show up for dental board meetings? Does anybody you know show up for dental board meetings unless you have a friend who's a dentist? No, right? The people who show up for the dental board meetings are dentists, right? Who shows up, again, in a very different way, who shows up at zoning meetings of small towns in Connecticut and other places, right? It's people who already own houses and don't want new houses built, right? Not the people who haven't even necessarily thought of living in the place where a new development is, right? And those, so again, the basic classic public choice story here is that you have concentrated interests around the status quo and you have diffuse interests around um, the, uh, any alternative. So you ask me, you know, does, does this ever change? And the, and the answer is yes, occasionally it does change, right? It changes when somehow the, um, you know, the, what I think of as like the eye of Sauron uh, of the larger public somehow gets focused on this previously concentrated, insulated um, uh, political regulatory regime, right? But the advantage, you know, and so if the news, right, there's a scandal, the news starts paying attention to it. Um, sometimes this happens when uh, outside investors, philanthropists decide to put a lot of money into um, building up an alternative policy domain. And that's one of the things we do at the Niskanen Center is try and provide new forms of information. You see this in the YIMBY movement, which I'm sure you're familiar with, the Yes in My Backyard movement, when um, suddenly all these other people who are renters start showing up at zoning board meetings and saying, yes, we want to we wanna build. Um, and one of the examples we've used at Niskanen that we did uh, worked on that Sam Hammond worked on was hearing aids, right? Um, right now, the hearing aid, the existing hearing aid industry and the people around it, um, uh, you know, wanna make sure that you have to do this in a audiologist's office, right? But most people don't actually need that. They could actually go into CVS and buy um, new, much cheaper uh, hearing aids. And so that was an area where Elizabeth Warren, who we often think of as being classically on the left, was aligned with, with a lot of libertarians and people like the Niskanen Center on that. And so all the reforms in this era are almost necessarily going to have this weird, strange bedfellows coalition, often between people on the left, between free marketers, right? And those are the kind of coalitions you need, but it's hard for that eye of Sauron to pay attention to more than one thing at a time, right? Um, they're, they're, what the people who are the uh, taking advantage of these captured economy systems um, uh, count on is that there's only one of those things that people can focus on at a time. Yeah, I think the eye of Sauron is um, getting dumber too, for what it's worth. <laughs> um, so, so it's like, like, look at all over the place now. It's like, you know, staring at some social media controversy instead of something that actually impacts people's lives. Um, one industry that this made me think of, and this, uh, I guess it's fairly consistent with the um, domains we're talking about. Uh, I spoke to a, a guy who started 1-800-CONTACTS. Uh, um, and I don't know if you know this story, but there were rules on the books in the majority of states where 
only eye doctors could sell you contact lenses. And I actually lived a version of this because I wear contact lenses and I could only get them from my eye doctor and it was very confusing to me and, and whatnot. So it took him years of going to Washington personally, being like, this makes zero sense. Like people want to be able to order contact lenses, uh, you know, like a refill online. Uh, he told me he, he literally took, um, uh, I think it was either dozens or hundreds of trips to Washington. He became just like this Mr. Smith figure, like railing against like the, this strange capture of, uh, of contact lens retail. Um, and I heard this and I was like, wow, um, thank goodness for this guy. Uh, but, but then I thought like, this must also be the case in lots of other niches that uh, we don't experience every day, but with someone's rent seeking, someone like has a hold of it. Yeah. Some, I mean, so one thing that I often try to, I often criticize people who are sometimes sympathetic with us is they think, oh yeah, the, the problem here is that the big guy is like crushing the little guy. And that's true in some of these areas, but sometimes the problem is the little guy keeping the big guy out, right? So you think about people who are trying to sell glasses directly to consumers and do uh, eye exams on your phone, right? Warby Parker, places like that. Well, their competition are all these little optometrists who want to um, do things in their office, right? And you see that in other areas. You see that in uh, in funeral services, right? Where you've got a regulatory regime that's sort of artificially- I wanna be able to bury my uh, loved ones online. No, I'm kidding. Uh <laughs> well, correct. I mean, why is Walmart not coming in? Why is Amazon not coming into that sector, right? Because there's, as anybody who's ever, you know, buried a loved one knows, the cost of these things is absolutely extraordinary, right? But the, um, essentially there, right? The undertaker sort of lobby has lobbied states to prevent competition from larger, more consolidated industries, right? So in some cases, the creative destruction would come in by having large firms come in and compete. You think about the way that grocery delivery in New York competes with, you know, with bodegas, right? Dude, or if other Walmart companies. sold coffins, they'd be like a hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah. 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 What is it? Cheaper funerals every day. So is, is it the case that those, those funeral homes uh, like ha like have made it so that states have said no one else can actually enter that industry. Yep. Yeah, they have a, the, all kind of regulations about exactly like who can um, uh, who can bury somebody, who can put somebody in a casket, who can do all the other things, um, such that it's it's very hard for anybody other than the incumbents to actually provide the service. And again, another thing is anyone who's ever buried a loved one knows is exactly the time when you know in any other thing you'd be haggling or asking but it feels inappropriate when you're buried yeah, yeah you don't want to go in and be like hey i want to you know do this funeral for less or whatever i mean like it, it feels like you must honor your loved one properly and that there's right. only one way to do so right but i mean these are just again when you when you go through it right the examples of this just keeps multiplying right so the the, the other example we don't do deal with in the book but we could have is the sale of cars right so tesla has you know gotten had a lot of trouble selling their cars directly to consumers, setting up their own dealerships, because in most states we have franchise laws that say that cars have to be sold um, through you know uh, individual separate dealers, right? Um, and that also is another one that ends up protecting incumbents, right? So if you look at the top one percent, there's a lot of car dealers in that uh, in that one percent. 
And it's really unclear that any of them are actually providing anything of value, except that they're skimming off profit, right? I think a lot of the car, the car companies, especially new car companies, would much rather set up their own dealers, their own, um, uh, their own maintenance, everything else themselves, rather than have to work with a whole, you know, um, a broken up separate set of, uh, of dealers as well. And you could just keep multiplying these examples of where our regulatory regime artificially fractures um, the market in that way prevents competition by locking in a, a bunch of small um, uh, small providers. The captured economy indeed. Uh, is there any um, cause for optimism or hope? Is there something that's about to, for example, flip um, because people have just gotten fed up with a particular uh, industry cabal? So I wish, I mean, again, I, I, think, I think the Yimby example is an interesting one, right? Because that's, a, again, has that classic structure of what we've been talking about. But one thing is, you know, that the, just the idea, and I, I say at Niskanen, we do sort of two things, right? We drop these big truth bombs from 50,000 feet, where we create these large synthetic things like the Captured Economy book that help give people a name for a problem that they were sort of vaguely aware of, and then they can actually name it and describe a structure to it. And then the other thing we do is we do a lot of um, what's called legislative subsidy, where we sit down with members of Congress or legislators, and we try and explain to them because usually it's only the incumbents who have the information um, to be able to explain even the regulatory regime that the legislators are in charge of. So I listened to your podcast with my friend and co-author Lee Drutman, and he was talking about this about that's what lobbyists do, right? Lobbyists have information. And so long as they have a monopoly on information, it's really hard to challenge the status quo. So I think, so the Yimbies are a good example, right? Where they're showing up, right? So one thing they're doing is they're sort of shining the light on where these arrangements are happening. They're showing that there's a larger diffuse public who's actually mobilized. And in many cases, they're bringing information to bear where previously only the incumbents had information. So just really quickly, one example of this is, um, there are some great studies of this process that show that, you know, who shows up at these zoning board meetings in little towns, it's often like retired lawyers who have the time to sit around studying the, the zoning regs, right? And they tell their um, uh, their city council members or whoever, oh, this would be terrible, this won't be legal, right? Well, in fact, actually, you could do it, but you need somebody else in the room to provide alternative sources of information. And I think you see that across the board in these areas, when you get even just a little bit of counter information in the room, that can often change the politics of these things quite dramatically, right? But the nature of these things is again, that the incumbents are organized and the challengers are disorganized and you need something to throw at them. And one of those things you can throw at them is you know, our parties, right? Parties conceivably can be a big enough interest to change how these, these issues are seen. But also there's other ways to, you know, in particular through philanthropy and other things to create counter sources of information. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched 
with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it, Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So I spoke to Lee recently, uh, even after that podcast that that you spoke of, and Lee is convinced that uh, the two-party system is a major problem. Obviously, he wrote a book called The Two-Party Doom Loop and thinks that the U.S. should have four or five or six national parties. Um, I obviously, as you probably know, I agree with him. Um, but before we we get to to, you've written a, a number of things on this topic. Um, most recently, it was this book, uh, "Never Trump: The Revolt of the Conservative Elites." Where do you see the energy uh, of conservatives who are not Trump fans going right now? Yeah. So, and again, I think all of these things that we're talking about are actually, in fact, all mixed up. Or connected, you mean? Well, connected. I don't mean mixed up. I don't mean mixed up in a bad way. I mean, they're all like... Intertwined, yeah. They're, they're all actually the same yeah. thing. So, so I remember right after the election, right after the election, I decided my sort of war work when Trump was elected was I was going to join the Niskanen Center, right? It was time to get off the sidelines. And these seemed like people who were actually might actually have some influence on the um, on the Republican side and that they that that seemed like a wholesome set of people to get involved with. And I was critical that so much of their activity ended up going into various forms of democracy reform or rules changes or, or whether other things, whereas what they really needed to do was to get involved, right? They needed in the in the terms of this essay we called uh, the Futurist Faction, which was drawn from the conclusion of Never Trump. Um, you know, if they really wanted to have an influence in the future of the Republican Party, they were not going to be the ones running the party anymore, right? But you could imagine a world in which they had a coherent faction that a dominant Trumpist faction had to negotiate with, and that that in fact was the more common pattern in American history. If you go back into how our parties were organized for most of our history, they were actually sort of loose confederations of these um, smaller factions, which was, which were coherent, which were organized. You think about you know, the Democratic Party of the 1930s, right? It's a coalition of unions, often quite radical unions in the Midwest and the Northeast, right? And Southern segregationists, right? That's what the party was, right? The Republican Party was its own kind of weird coalition between, um, between progressives and liberals and stalwart business-oriented Republicans. And that's true all the way back in American history, that that's what parties are. And so a lot of the problem, I think, is that that factional structure is broken down. We've gotten parties that are too coherent 
And in an interesting way, one of the first people to really challenge that is on the left. If you look at the DSA people over in Brooklyn, right, um, that you probably see in like hip bars and stuff, um, you know, they are creating a faction. They're out there. They're creating their own magazines, their own um, meetups and bars. They have their own systems of funding candidates, of recruiting candidates, of mobilizing people. They're connecting people laterally well, to the, one another. In the Republican Party, the analog was the Tea Party, really. And then the, right. the Tea Party elected a ton of reps, uh, you know, was, was uh, and then they've kind of gotten subsumed. So it has happened on, on both sides. Right. And so I so my argument, and this is where I think we're going to fight, right, um, is that, first of all, on the Republican side, that was the mistake the never Trump Republicans made. Instead of going out there and, and doing sort of, you know, defending democracy, they needed to just do democracy. They needed to go and create a faction in the side of the Republican Party of those people who were sort of free market, national security, whatever they were, the old form Republicans who were strong enough and organized enough that these new populists had to negotiate with them. And the same thing, and again, this is where I would say to you, right, that that's where the opening is in the Democratic Party, right? That is, we have a DSA kind of wing now. They're out there. We have a faction there, right? Right now, the mainstream Biden, Pelosi, you know, Clyburn kind of part of the party only has to negotiate with them, right? They're the only organized alternative inside the Democratic Party. And unless there's what I would call a sort of radical liberal Andrew Yang wing also in the Democratic Party that those mainstream have to negotiate with, then again, the path of least resistance, and you've seen this in the Biden administration, is just to gradually keep getting pulled to the left. And so part of the argument is that, A, I think we have a way to get some of the benefits of multi-partyism in our two-party system, right? That's a historical way. We know we have a template. We have a program. Yeah, so we know on, how to do on, that. On the Republican side, I think the major problem, there are a couple of things that I think make this very difficult because like, I know a bunch of the, I, I consider them, let's say, moderate Republicans who are not Trump fans. Um, and, and the problem is that they just get drummed out of office if they, <laughs> if they stand up uh, and flout Trump. You have like a diminishing number of folks who are in that wing of the party. Uh, they're, I mean, they're subject to personal pressures uh, as well. Uh, death threats really is what I'm describing when I say personal pressures. I, I mean, I would love it if there was like a coherent, cohesive, let's say Mitt Romney-led uh, faction of the Republican Party that was like a, a counterweight to Trumpism. Um, and there were a bunch of people that have hoped for that for quite some time. Um, but I feel like their hopes have been dropping every month since 2016. Right. But I think the point is that's because they don't have power, right? Again, they, these people were used to the idea that they were the natural people to run the Republican Party, right? They, you know, they were like, in, uh, you know, in sort of slightly pretentious terms, they were the ancien regime, right? And they got pushed out by this new Trumpist side. So they weren't used to the idea that they had to organize themselves in order to protect their own interests. And again, that's where, that's what they needed to be doing the day after Trump was elected, is starting to create all of those same structures. Again, the same things that those DSA people did, right? They had the right idea of how you actually practice well, democracy. One of the, so the, disagreement. The, the, the problem on that side is that you have these primary voters. And I, I don't think that this moderate wing 
can win a primary <laughs> the Republican side. You know, you had the, the, the never Trump figure in Ohio, Dolan, I think he got about 23% of the vote. Um, so that's like a sign. And he was like the move on from Trump wing. Um, and, and I think that's fairly typical. Like the, the, the person who stands up and says like, hey, enough of this Trump stuff, let's like, you know, uh, go back to basics or be what you consider a classic Republican, probably can get like 20 to 30% of primary voters. Um, which isn't going to be enough for them to, to win. And so it seems professionally uh, self-destructive. Um, so they, so no one does it because, uh, you know, who wants to do something professionally self-destructive? Right. But again, I think you're just redescribing the underlying problem, right? The underlying problem is unless you actually have an organized faction that can provide money, that can provide ideas, right? The one other thing is just being against Trump is not enough. Right. That's what voter and just saying we want to go back to the way things are is not enough because voters don't want to go back to the thing the way things were. They don't want a restoration of the ancien regime. Right. And that's where, again, I think there's been a failure of ideas. You know what? I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to agree with you on this, Stephen. I think you and I actually see eye to eye because I agree that that group of uh, Republicans should have um, ideas and policies and principles that are not like, hey, not this guy, because that's not really that compelling. Um, uh, and those principles ideally would be taken from the Niskanen Center's research being like, okay, you guys are pissed off. You know, I get it. It's because the economy has been rigged against you and here are all the ways we're going to unrig it. Uh, you know, like, like that would be compelling. So I agree with you that they should do that. The, maybe the reason why I differ from you in terms of the approach is I, I think that structurally the way like this Republican primary is set up is that, you know, that that's not gonna, I mean, they haven't tried it to the extent that you and I are describing. So, you know, maybe it could do better than 23%. Um, but I, I think that this party primary is just very, very distorting um, that, that there are these, these things that make it so that you wind up with like the tail wagging the dog or this relatively small component of voters controlling and hijacking the agenda. Yeah, and look, I mean, I totally, I think a lot of our, again, the disagreement that I have with you and with Lee is not if I was starting the whole thing from scratch, what, what I would create, right? In fact, I actually think there's a good argument that our system of separation of powers right, is designed around not having dominant parties that control the agenda, right? If you go yeah. back and you read the, the Federalist Papers, right, they are saying that essentially what they want is a system um, based on deliberation, right? And that you need conflict for that. And you need to not have one, you know, one thing that can sort of monopolize the agenda in a way that parties often do, right? Now, the question is, so again, I, I think you'd have more of that kind of deliberation if um, one party couldn't control the entire agenda and it essentially had to enter into a coalition with other parties. Now, the difference I have is, there's no way to get there from here, right? One, so one, there's no way to get there from here, right? So, and that a factionalized party system where you have these, in, in a way, parties inside parties is the best thing we can get that you can actually get to reasonably from here. And the other thing is in spending all your time trying to actually create, to get to a multi-party system, you're also right. Time is, is there's simply opportunity cost. You're doing one thing. You're not doing something else. If you're not spending your time building power inside parties where you will be, if you put in a little bit of energy, 
you'll at least get some marginal results. And in many cases, you don't need that much in order to force the, the dominant part of the party to have to deal with you on things like rules and agendas and everything else, right? Even a little bit of work on building a, a party faction can be enough to get you pivotal power. You spend all your time trying to create a third party, then what happens is you essentially get nothing and nothing and nothing until you get everything. And I worry that a lot of people who are being who are being encouraged to go into third partyism are being pushed into a thing that won't actually get them anything. And they could have been using their energy inside the parties to build power in a way that would actually get them a lot of what they want and what you and I both want. So if someone says to me, hey, I want to try and invest energy on in uh, helping reform or move or catalyze either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party in a particular way, um, I applaud it. I say, like, fantastic, uh, you know? Um, so I don't think you and I disagree. It's like, when I see those efforts, I myself try and help, for example, you know, moderate Republicans who I think are trying to do positive things, like, uh, or, or um, people in the Democratic Party who I think are pushing in, in the right direction. Um, I have, like, a, a sense that, like, I personally don't think that those efforts are going to be successful. <laughs> like, I... I I, I give people all the credit of the world. I'm like, go for it. But, um, you know, like I, I feel like the, um, the primary voters, uh, let's say, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll just say in the Republican Party, um, like I don't think they'll be buying other stuff <laughs> in the time frame that we have. Um, and even if you did have a faction within those parties, like I'm not convinced that they were going to result in any of like the bigger, bolder changes that you're describing, because at this point, neither party will work with the other party. And even if you had one party for a moment saying, you know what, I would consider a carbon tax or I'd consider that neither party can achieve a genuine governing majority um, really in this system as it currently stands. Um, and their political incentives are not such that they'll pay a price for not solving a problem. Um, and so, you know, what, what you'd look forward to is you'd look forward to, like, e even if you had like a slightly more rational Republican Party, which, by the way, I'm totally for, <laughs> like, or a slightly more, um, uh, I don't know, like, I mean, the Democratic Party, I think, really has at least two parties within its confines. And you could say it's great that they're like negotiating, but like, you know, it's like, I I'm, but I don't think that either side in a two, this two-party system is going to be able to achieve anything meaningful uh, for any long-lasting period of time. Okay, so I agree with that, but I think the implication is somewhat different than you suggest, right? So my theory essentially is that a faction in either party, let's take the Democrats, because I'm a Democrat, and I, I think basically you're a Democrat. So I'm just going to say, I think that's basically where you are, right? It only has to be big enough that the whole rest of the party can't govern without it, right? And that it can withhold, withhold its support from that party if it doesn't get what it wants, right? So right now, right, anybody, right? Joe Manchin is a faction of his own, right? He can just stand up and they can't do anything without him, right? Imagine if you had a group of Democrats who was just five senators, right? Five senators could, at the beginning of a, uh, of a legislative session, say, you know, we're not going to support whoever it is for majority leader unless they agree to rules that make it much easier for people in the parties to put things on the agenda, right, like a carbon tax or whatever it else it is, right? Because right now the problem is either party, when they're in control, only allow things on the agenda for the most part 
where their parties are entirely unanimous and they're opposed to the other party, right? Once you break that, once you have a small enough faction that can say, we don't want to have rules like that anymore. We want to have more of a free-for-all in determining what are we talking about. Once you have that, once you have those new rules, then people are going to sit around and say, you know, there are coalitions to be made with the other party. We could be talking about something completely different than either one of the parties want to talk about, right? And that's where, again, I think just building that pivotal power inside parties can get you a lot of that loosening up of the agenda that can allow for a lot of new things to happen. And again, just going back to the captured economy point, if you want to break any of these, um, these existing status quo, it turns out that the status quo has supporters in both parties, right? But so does it have opponents, right? If you want to actually get a large enough majority to do anything about these things, you need to be able to pull people from both parties, and therefore you need to break the party's you know, leadership's dominance over the agenda. And that's what I think a, even a relatively small faction of people who have a different orientation could do. And that's where I see that as an opportunity. Again, every little bit you get, gets you a little bit more of that pivotal power in a way that trying to change the entire electoral system, again, gets you nothing until it gets you everything and maybe not get you anything because you may never get, you, you may never win. And that's where I think that scarce power you've got is better put into that. I actually like the characterization of you get nothing until you get everything because like I, I see uh, I see a, a realignment as completely feasible uh, pretty quickly. And one thing I'll suggest as like a very low hanging fruit opportunity for let's say a third party, um, there are over a half a million elected offices around the country, including many that are unpaid, nonpartisan, uh, county executive, state rep, city council type positions. You know, can you get hundreds, maybe even thousands of uh, local office holders uh, under the forward party in like, you know, six years? Like uh, if you have the resources, I think you can. Uh, and it, do you think that there is uh, even a bigger realignment possible at the national level, given that the, frankly, like the uh, enthusiasm for both parties at a record low and 62% of Americans want to move on from the two-party system and 50% self-identify as independents. I mean, heck, even having Evan McMullen in the Senate as an independent, like he could be a one-person faction, the way you're describing. You know, you can do it from within the party system, and I applaud the people that try, but I think the entire party system is well overdue. Uh, you know, and it sounds like you and I agree where if you had a magic wand, you're like, yeah, I never would have designed it this way because this is poor design. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, it sounds like you and I have the same goals, though. And Like, I would applaud anyone who's trying to do what you're describing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, so it may be that I have a um, a more tragic view of the world than an engineer's view of the world. Right. That is, I think I think there are a lot of things that are unfortunate and we can't do anything about. Right. And just to go back to the point about realignments. Remember, we haven't had a realignment that involved an actual new party since the 1850s, right? But we've had a lot of realignments since then. And most of those were because of shifts in what you might think of as factional or coalitional dynamics, right? They, we had a, essentially a realignment in the 50s and 60s as African-Americans moved out of the Republican Party and moved yep. into the Democratic Party, right? That happened while the two parties were still the two parties. We didn't get, you know, we had we had some moments of new parties, right? Obviously, Strom Thurmond ran on a Dixiecrat 
party. George Wallace ran on a, uh, on a on a third party, but the change really happened because the because the forces inside the parties shifted. All right, and I think having a Democratic Party that had a sort of market oriented reformist, pro social insurance, anti capture faction that the whole rest of the party had to deal with, A, I think would have a realigning effect because it, I think there are a lot of Republicans who would be more sympathetic to being in a party, in a faction like that, who could actually say, and this goes back to your branding point, right? They could say, oh, I'm not like those AOC Democrats. I'm an Andrew Yang Democrat, right? And that's a faction. And it's got a personality and it's got a program and it's got a thing you can join. You can actually go somewhere and meet other people and like huddle together for warmth. Um, those are all things that I think would be very powerful and really could shift around the coalitions and the parties and would make the Republicans sufficiently fearful that they were just going to be in a kind of permanent minority status, that they would have to worry that just giving over their party entirely to Trumpism was going to, was essentially going to doom it, right? But right now you've got all these Republicans who essentially feel like they're stuck in the Republican party because the Democratic party's got And no that's what we have to change. Like, like if they had a place to go, and I know because I had these conversations with them all the time, and you do too. I mean, how many Republicans have said to you, it's like, I would love a place to go. I mean, like, I, I, there are millions, tens of millions. Um, and, and to the point you make about, look, um, the last big realignment was, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln winning as a third party candidate in 1860 with 39.8% of the vote. Um, and it's been a while. And then in 1964, the parties realigned because of the Civil Rights Act. But then since 1964, what you've seen is just increased polarization between the parties. Then you have cable news come in in 1996 with Fox and MSNBC, and then Facebook in 2004. So the parties uh, have started to go like this, uh, and there are billions of dollars driving them in this direction. Um, and so if, if, if in the face of the, these historical trends, if the plan is to go in and try and move this party like back this way or this party back this way, like, uh, you know, uh, like you're, go, you're swimming against like a giant tide. Um, and, and, and so this is obviously because, you know, I am Andrew Yang. And so like if you were to say to me like, hey, your choices are like try and create the Andrew Yang uh, like faction of the Democrats or uh, like try and energize this unspoken for independent voter, third party, which, you know, can run, run the gamut in terms of ideology, though I suspect most of them agree with some of the things you just recommended. I mean, like, I agree with most of all of them. And I am, by the way, going to revisit uh, naming this left libertarian, uh, like human libertarian kind of strain that that Ms. Gannon Center represents. So I, I've made uh, the, the choice. Um, and I'm 100% confident that it's the right choice. Um, and I can't wait for you and I to like and continue having these conversations so we can revisit um, like, uh, you know, uh, what happens. But like as someone who, you know, actually is monitoring what's going on with uh, the forward party and the rest of it, uh, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Well, again, the only thing I would say is uh, I'm not 100 percent confident that I'm right and neither should you be. Right. I mean, that's I mean, hey, nobody who's, you know, I mean, one of the elements I think is also I think of as in Andrew Yangism, right, is sort of uh, that kind of rational thought print or one of the basic rational thoughts principles is everything is kind of our bets. That well, are based, you're you're based right in the sense that I don't I don't live in an alternate reality where I could see how the Andrew Yang Democrat thing is going. 
Um, but I live in a reality where I can see how the forward party thing is going, and I'm really excited about it. <laughs> right. Well, again, I mean, I, I, the only thing I'll say is I think you and Lee might be right, right? There might be a pathway that I think is low probability, but right, lots of low probability bets in life do pay off, right? So I think given, you know, we've got a lot of history about third parties and none of them are good, right? But lots of things, nothing happens until it does, right? So you might be right and we might come back in 10 years and you'll say, hey, Steve, tell us you and your political science degree turned out that you were wrong and I was right, right? Um, but I think my point is about what the balance of probabilities are. I think the balance of probabilities are to get where we both want to go, right? This is the thing that has the higher probability of payoff. Well, you and I both want to, uh, to get to the same place. Um, would certainly love to work with you in yours to help make it happen. Love in the Scanning Center. Love your personal research, uh, the arguments you make. Uh, you know, uh, I'm on board with virtually all of them. Um, and so, you know, if anything, I feel like, like I, I wish that there were people taking on these problems from multiple angles, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm gonna try this way that I'm excited about. If there are folks that uh, are working within the parties, super supportive and excited about them. Um, and really congrats to you for joining this effort and helping inform people. Uh, I think your ideas are, are super important um, and, uh, you know, keep them coming cause, and send them my way. Cause like, I'll, I'll do my best to help get them out, out there. Yeah, and thank you. And your listeners, right, they're all up there in the niskanencenter.org. So go and check them out. Yeah. Is there anything that people can do aside from maybe buy a, one or two of your books? Uh, well, they should certainly do, do that. Um, I mean, one thing I've been thinking a lot is I do think there are a lot of people like us, right, who have that, you know, who feel like they have this sort of synthesis of ideas but don't know what to do with it, right? They don't know where to join, right? Like I always take the example, I think there's lots of college students who are somewhere in our space, right? They want something that doesn't seem to be either the traditional left or right, but they're also bored by sort of what we think of as traditional centrism. And so I think the Niskanen Center is a natural place. They should create Niskanen Center chapters on their university campus. They should sit around, they should invite us to give talks. They should um, you know, sit around and have reading groups of our stuff, right? That's, you know, I'm a student of the conservative movement. That's my real job, right? And that's how the conservatives built themselves, right? They built themselves up from chapters that connected people to each other, where they, where they, you know, where they got new ideas. They then found donors who were associated with it, interests that were associated, right? That's how social movements get created. And the most important thing is for people to get up off their couch and find other people who agree with them and work with them and talk to them and uh, and see where, and then join your thing or my thing or one of these other Just elements. join a that thing. Can. That's a fine message, Stephen. I, 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 I love it. You know, I, I do think, uh, like I'm genuinely going to engage with some kind of branding exercise um, because I think that the Skanen Center is, um, spot on in terms of like the true problems and the real solutions. They just don't fall on a traditional left-right spectrum. Um, uh, so we need to give it a catchy name uh, and then explain it to people powerfully and then start the college chapters you're describing and everything else. Um, but to the extent that there is an ideology that the forward party most closely resembles, uh, I think it is uh, what you all are trying to make happen every day. All right, well, that, that's great, let's work together. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you, Andrew.